Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. We've all heard the acronyms ADD, LD, OCD, and ADHD, but do we really know what they stand for? In my book, Mugamore, released last summer, those acronyms cover a young boy's face on the cover. It is my gut belief that these labels are applied too quickly to children without thorough observations and proper diagnosis. My guests this afternoon work with children daily and will lend their expertise to our discussion of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. My first guest, Dr. Bilal Polson, is the assistant principal at the Northern Parkway Elementary School on Long Island and member of the Board of Governors for the Early Childhood Assembly of the National Council of Teachers of English. Among his many duties as an assistant principal are acting as chair for the Response to Intervention Team, Wellness Committee, and Dignity for All Students Act Committee, or the DASA Committee. Bilal, welcome to the show. Uh, Good evening, and, and thank you for having me, Doc. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Uh, so, Bilal, what exactly is ADHD and ADD? Well, ADHD and ADHD are two acronyms that explain attention differences that are related to the executive function of the brain and its inability to control things such as working memory, verbal skills, problem-solving skills, and imagery. Now, when, when, you, when you say that, my first thought when I think of ADHD and ADD is uh, of a child running around and bouncing around and, and unable to control himself, but you, you seem to focus more on what's going on in the brain. Absolutely, because it's a direct relationship to it. One of the misconceptions and misnomers about ADHD and ADD and other attention dif- differences is that... Uh, m- Many of the many of the children, particularly younger children, who exhibit this uh, inattentiveness or hyperactivity or having a lot of energy, they attribute it to just young people uh, just having this particular behavior scheme due to their uh, development. And to the most part, that is true. But whenever you have a youngster who exhibits this type of behavior, where it has an impact on their quality of life and it's exasperated, then you could tend to think that it has something to do with an intention difference that needs to be explored a lot longer. So, yes, it is absolutely re- uh, related to the neurology uh, and, and the way the, uh, the, the brain is wired. It's a direct relationship to that. Okay. So you, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, one or two misconceptions. What is actually the largest misconception about attention differences? One of the largest is that a child uh, will grow out of it. And one of the things that, and, and then the other thing, it has something to do with the diet or how much screen time a child is experiencing, experiencing via computers, a, a tablet, or 
another smartphone uh, device, what have you. And what the literature points to is that these differences have everything to do with genetic makeup, uh, family background, and there have been some um, linkage to environmental influences, but far less. So there's definitely things that happen because of a traumatic childbirth or may, something that may be happening biologically with, with the, the, the birth parents. Um, sometimes even when children are around um, highly intensified toxic environments, uh, that may have some type of influence. Um, but most of it has to do with if it runs in your family, something as simple as that. And then also the other misconception has a lot to do with this whole idea of growing out of it. And one of the things that, that many people, the reason why they think that is the case is because what happens to many of us, particularly of those who, of us who uh, go undiagnosed, there's certain things that we develop such as coping mechanisms and, and, also, and other forms of informal behavior modifications that we learn how to figure out how to navigate in this world with our attention differences. So it may appear that we're going out of it, but we're just adapting to our, our, our particular difference. And typically when an attention difference uh, goes undiagnosed and untreated or, uh, or not handled, Typically, it, it, the gap widens and it becomes a lot worse because of it's, uh, the lack to address it. And, and then the other part of it is, uh, the other mis misconception is it has to do with diet. And, and though diet can have an influence on any of us, if any of us t have an intake that spikes, has a, a huge intake of, of a spike in sugar, yes, that's going to influence anyone's uh, activity usually. But it does not have an impact long-term on someone who has an attention difference. And then the other piece is, is also related to screen time. It's uh, Many people think that watching too much television or spending too much time on a mobile device or a tablet, that that would increase inactivity um, or hyperactivity or inattentiveness, and that's not the case either. And the reason why is because whenever... Uh, uh, a child or any person is highly interested in a particular topic, they are able to attend for a sustained length of time because they are interested, whether they have a attention difference or not. So those are some of the misnomers and some of the misconceptions that are, are pretty popular within all communities. Okay. Now, a couple of times you said us and we. Do you have a personal experience with uh, attention di differences? Absolutely. I, it's always been suspected that I have had ADHD since I was a young boy, but I had not been formally diagnosed until a few years ago because we, uh, my wife and I, we um, suspected that our youngest son, who is now nine, uh, had this attention difference and hyperactivity. And so he, when he was at the age of four, we were able to actually uh, get a pre-screening and he had predispositions for ADHD. And the, the thing was, at the time, when we went to see a neuropsychologist at the time, he did not recommend medication uh, or any other pharmaceutical treatments at the time because of his age. Um, and, and along with that, I also uh, was uh, diagnosed because, as I said earlier, 
the literature shows us that there is a direct relationship between um, a family member and um, anyone who may have it. So it's, you know, if, if, if you have been diagnosed, there is a large chance that someone in your family has it, be it mom or dad or someone else in the, in the family line. So, yes, I've had uh, a direct relationship. The only difference with me is that I was not formally diagnosed. So my uh, method of treatment as a youngster was actually through athletics and the arts. I grew up as a dancer, and that was the way in which I was able to uh, utilize behavior modifications that actually helped me. Well, that's a strong uh, that's a strong statement to the importance of uh, physical activity and movement in the educational setting. Absolutely. All right. Now, what what specifically did you, know, you and your wife observe in your son that that said, "Hey, let's let's get this checked out." Yes, and 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 these are some of the indications that everyone should kind of uh, look for. Um, it had to do with not only his. Um, inability to attend to to attend in uh, for sustained lengths of time, but it also his uh, impulsivity and his decision making. Um, he was the kid that if you didn't hold his hand in the parking lot, he would jump out at traffic. He was the kid that was crawling under the clothes rack in um, clothing department stores. He was that child. He was the child in preschool that would wander around the room and could not attend for sustained lengths of time um, like his peers of the same age group. So after um, seeing this um, traditionally and, and, and for, for continuously and also having family members and other people who cared about him and us notice this, it was recommended that we um, not only do early uh, intervention but eventually uh, see someone formally about his attention difference, and my wife and I were very happy that we did. And and I would say that your son is fortunate because if, if, for example, if this was two generations ago, some of those behaviors would have simply resulted in uh, punishment. You know, I, you know, you know, if I jumped absolutely. out into traffic, I would have got smacked by my parent or something absolutely. to that effect. And 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 coming from an African, Latin, and Hispanic family. To be honest with you, that was always our initial thinking um, to do that type of traditional discipline. But we had to take a step back and say, listen, this is happening, happening too frequently. No child um, wants to continue to do the same thing that's incorrect to endanger and harm themselves. So we had to really uh, think about our approach differently. And so that's what led us to, to do something a lot more formal. Which, which also lends um, to the classroom as well. Many, many classroom teachers, and actually all teachers, become highly frustrated with our students who have attention differences. And one of the things that they have to do is, one, be absolutely patient, two, communicate with the families about the differences, and then begin to think about some of the ways to change the environment and some of the conditions in which they're approaching children. And that's for families as well as schools. Okay, so uh, let's say that I'm a novice teacher or uh, I'm new to a building and I'm given a, you know, a group of children and, and, and I start observing different things with, each, with the children. Uh, what are the suggested first steps to addressing a child that may have a parent attention uh, issues? 
Well, and that happens pretty frequently. It happens pretty much on a daily basis whenever a guest teacher or a new um, practitioner is uh, engaging with a student. The first thing you would do is just look for consistent patterns, and, and particularly with any type of behavior that's unusual with children, first thing you want to do is really be really clear about the rules that you have for your environment. And, 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 and once you notice that a child is uh, seemingly breaking those boundaries, first thing you should do is to think about making sure that that child and everyone around them is safe. And if it continues, pull that child aside, and then right away I would assume that that child has some type of difference that they're operating from, so you automatically begin to create some type of uh, environment and try to modify the, the conditions immediately to make sure that they're successful because typically even in the worst conditions every student wants to be safe and they really want to respect authority but many many children for their own um, safety precautions may test that just to see how safe they will be so one of the things you should do particularly if you're in a new environment is to really pay attention be patient but also urgent to ensure that that child and all of the children are safe. Dr. Polson, this is excellent information that you're sharing with us, and I have to say I believe the children in your elementary school are fortunate to have someone like you in, in position because I'm sure oftentimes you're the first one uh, called to deal with uh, apparent behavioral issues. Uh, quite a bit, but I, I must say with the team, of the leadership team that we have, we all handle uh, discipline issues pretty equally, but when it comes down to attention differences, yes, I've become the go-to person um, throughout the building, um, particularly when it comes to those difficult family conversations, um, because many of our families, because of the misinformation around attention differences, um, still are operating from an old paradigm. Um, many of our families, as you know, because we work together, many of our families come from the continent of Africa, the Caribbean, and various parts of uh, Central and South America. So many of our traditional and cultural values are contrary to some of the new norms that are being established based on the literature that is being written around new findings with attention differences. So when I have these conversations with, with the families and actually share my own experiences and my own background, it absolutely increases the comfort level. And some conversations are more difficult than others, but I have to say we, we have a high success rate with our families actually working with us no matter how long it takes for them to come to terms well, with where their, family, where their children are, you know, how they are experiencing um, school. That's excellent. All right. It's time for us to take a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Dr. Bilal Polson, as we continue to discuss the important issue of attention deficit, or ADHD. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 
646-476-4648. We're taking your calls on Talk Zone. So, Dr. Paulson. Yes. Uh, we, we, we entered, uh, the break discussing what, uh, teachers and, and, and others working with children in school should do if they, if they observe or, or suspect attention differences. But let's talk about other roles. For example, what is the child's role in dealing with attention deficit? Well, I think it's very important that no matter what the age is, that children are aware of their experience or their condition. Um, I have to tell you, my wife and I, very early on, we let our son Malachi know that he had an attention de- deficit or attention difference. And right away, he claimed it. And he actually said, Mommy, Daddy, I have a lot of energy in my heart. And initially, as I said, we did we made the decision not to, to medicate him because at that point, because of the early intervention experiences that he had at even an early age, by the time he entered a kindergarten, his kindergarten teacher didn't even realize that he had an intention difference until midway in the year when we actually wow. brought it to her attention, and she still mm. didn't believe us. So he had a very successful uh, kindergarten in first grade uh, year, and still in second grade he was very, very successful. But he's a kid who is a high achiever, and actually he noticed that he was not able to complete his work in a timely fashion or with the quality of his own expectation. So he, along with us, decided that, you know what, it was time to actually go to a neurologist because it's been a few years now that he had the uh, uh, pre-diagnosis to actually look into it a little further. And the neurologist actually prescribed a medication for him, and uh, it has been working well for him. And, um, and it has allowed him to attend um, a lot more successfully, complete his work, and the quality of his work has uh, increased uh, exponentially. And he really feels great about it. And so what's funny is that he names his, as we call them, um, vitamins or his medication. He calls them PAVs, pay attention vitamins. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, my wife and I, we're in full agreement that However, you know, no matter what the age is, that children should be in tune with what uh, condition that they're in um, so they can own it. And he has owned it, and that's helped him. So he doesn't have any, you know, his self-esteem is high. He has a lot of confidence. He's athletic, and he is, you know, a budding student athlete, and uh, he's encouraged. So he, he's very clear with all his teachers and his friends and family around his attention difference, and his paths. Okay. Now, how many children do you have? I have two sons. I have a son that's 10 to soon to be 11 in fifth grade, and um, whose name is Aliasha, and then Malachi, who I've been mentioning, who's in third grade, who just turned nine uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, two boys, nine and uh, soon to be 11. Okay. Now, did you have some concerns uh, with the oldest child after Malachi was diagnosed or did you know right off the bat that Malachi uh, that the older child was not an issue well it's interesting part of the reason why we were in touch with this neuropsychologist initially is because our oldest son has uh, a learning difference which is dyslexia so we had been investigating that um pretty intensely uh, uh, alongside with investigating 
the intention differences. So we went to the neuropsychologist for both boys, but for separate reasons. Um, and one of the things that we noticed was that even with our oldest son's learning difference, um, there is an intentional uh, piece that's happening as well, but it's not related to hyperactivity. So, so that's why what you'll find out in the field or here in the field now is that ADD is the catch-all term that they're using for all of the attention differences, um, and they don't use as often as in the past the distinction of ADHD and ADD. They typically call all attention differences ADD, but the reason why I'd like to refer to the two of them because there is a distinction, particularly when you talk about behavior. So our youngest son has the absolute hyperactivity, the behavior that goes along with the intentiveness, but our oldest son who has dyslexia, he absolutely shows um, a distractibility and uh, uh, um, uh, intention difference as well, but doesn't is not as impulsive, and um, the, act, the hyperactivity is not... Uh, aligned with it, but we think it has more to do with his dyslexia and his learning difference than anything. But at this point, he has not been clinically diagnosed, um, and that's one of the things that we plan to pursue as well. Well, well, I greatly appreciate the fact that you're sharing your your, your family's um, uh, experience with this, because I think uh, true stories and people speaking from experience resonate well uh, with with listeners, and 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 I'm sure it's been successful when you speak to parents of students in your school as well. Absolutely, I firmly believe in practicing that way, just coming from an honest and authentic place, letting okay. families and everyone know that we're we're people, we're families, just like you know we're all families in this together. Okay, now what is the school's role? You mentioned your child's role in in owning it, um, but what is the school's role in dealing with attention differences? Well, the school role is paramount. It's We need to be the information base, and we need to be that liaison to the students, the families, and the, the families' um, medical uh, practitioners. So we often encourage um, families to um, please write a letter, sign a waiver to allow us to communicate with their practitioners, their medical practitioners, so we could share out information, so we could share what's happening in school, and they could also inform us the work that they're doing outside of school. So from from a, a holistic school perspective, it's so important that the classroom teachers really informed about the student. It's, it's paramount that all teachers know as much as they can about their students, their passions, their interests, um, their talents, their strengths, as well as the gaps and the in, in the weaknesses that they may bring to the table, and and that and that goes with classroom teachers, with all of the other supporting teachers, special area teachers, uh, school psychologists, so, social workers, what have you, and the building administration and leadership has to also take a central role. In, in as I said earlier, being the information base, yes, to be informed about the various attention differences. And to to be that outlet and inlet to inform families, students, um, and teachers, and medical practitioners about what's going on in the field in terms of the literature, but also just as importantly within the practice. Okay. Now, and that's paramount information. That's great information. Um, I have a question. I I get a sense that because many people haven't done the thorough observations uh, and had proper diagnosis. 
as you did with your your sons i I get a feeling that too often when a child is is acting out or not paying attention that a label is affixed to them without uh, the thorough observations and a proper diagnosis. Would you concur that there's been a span of time or maybe it still exists where that label is being affixed to children too too rapidly? Well, absolutely. When, when Especially when we were growing up as children, not only was that happening too rapidly, um, but more importantly, misinformed and not doing anything about it. So giving a kid a label and putting them in a corner thinking that it was over. Oh, we know what's happening with that youngster, and that was it. The reason why it's so important to learn about um, various attention differences and learning differences is to become informed so you know what to do. That's more importantly. Um, what, what would happen in the past was that too often children were labeled, and that was that. That was the beginning and end of the story. You want to find out as much as you can so you know exactly how to practice. And you must always operate from the place of compassion and having patience and thinking about a plan that could be in place. So one of the things um, that I always recommend, particularly for teachers, with working with students who have um, attention deficits and family members could attest to it, is proximity. Children with attention deficits always want to be as close to you as possible so you could ground them. So that's why so often we have children in our families that still want to be close with us, be it lying in the bed, watching television, or wanting a hug. They want to be close to you because you ground them. And so that's one of the tips that I would uh, share with teachers. And sometimes you have to be creative with that. Um, Sometimes you have to move around just as frequently as your students. The other thing is, and I and I have to say this, that so many of our teachers are, are, are being a lot more open-minded and receptive, particularly over the last 5 to 10 to 15 years, about really changing up their seating assignments, not being um, uh, married to this whole idea of the row concept, switching up their seating, but also not being afraid to allow their students to stand and to move while they're giving instruction. So oftentimes, Doc, you'll go into classrooms in all types of different areas in learning environments in school, but you see teachers today a lot more comfortable with students finding their own creative spaces to learn within the classroom. And also, you'll find a lot more teachers being a lot more comfortable to actually um, take their class out of the classroom. It's funny, just last week before the break, um, the art teacher asked if she could take the children outside to to, uh, conduct her art class. And I had to just remind her, listen, the whole campus is your classroom. Excellent, excellent point. And, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because several years ago I was director of a school for special education. In fact, it was for kids who um, the regular school districts couldn't handle and many of them had um, serious uh, mental illnesses uh, on top of um, attention differences. And the most effective teacher was the one who did not have uh, her, her class sitting in rows. In fact, she had 
different areas. There might be a couch in one area, a a uh, a throw rug in another area, wow. and the students were allowed to do their work where they were comfortable. And she and her assistant moved around as much as the kids did, and. It was a small setting uh, where we only had a handful of these youngsters, but each one of them can equal four kids, you know, if the circumstance is right or wrong. And her class, I I almost never had any referrals or any uh, negative information come from her class because of just exactly what you said. She kept she allowed them to learn how they were comfortable in their space and to move around freely. And that was highly effective. So. We have been speaking with Dr. Bilal Polson, assistant principal at the Northern Parkway Elementary School on Long Island and member of the Board of Governors for the Early Childhood Assembly of the National Council of Teachers of English. Bilal, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Dr. Jefferson. It's been my pleasure, and I look forward to continuing this conversation with you on and off air. Same here. Take care. Stay tuned because our next guest will share a wealth of resources, research, and surprising facts concerning attention deficit.